came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. And today is Tuesday, the 24th of December, 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, we have a climate crisis on our hands. See what you can do to help to convince your local politicians that we need wide-ranging policy changes. And we need them urgently. Each fortnight, we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And if you're not already, there's another great astronomy podcast that you should listen to, and that is The Scientists, with our friends Dr. Ancal Lopez-Sanchez, a Spanish-Australian astrophysicist, and his co-host is the wonderful indigenous astrophysicist Kirsten Banks. Listen in. You'll love their work. And don't forget to check out a very cool space website, spaceaustralia.com. Now, our regular listeners will know we always take a break over the festive season. Happy holidays, everyone. And tonight is Christmas Eve, so we have a special treat for our die-hard Astro fans. Did you see what I did there? What I've done is take our two most popular episodes for 2019, and I've removed both Ian's and my segments and spliced Two fabulous interviews into a single, double-header, reprised episode. First up, supernova scientist Dr. Ashley Reiter. Then we have radio astronomer Steve Oney. Enjoy. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr. Ashley Reiter, ARC Future Fellow and Senior Lecturer in the School of Science at the University of New South Wales in Canberra, Australia. She specialises in Type 1a supernova and other transient phenomena from stars, in particular their origin, evolution history and birth rates. And basically, Ashley, you research anything that erupts, explodes or merges and also make predictions about which of these sources may be seen with gravitational waves with LISA when it's launched. Sounds like fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, so before we talk about your research into white dwarfs and type 1a supernova, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Ashley, and tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place? Yeah, sure. I am actually from Ottawa in Canada. That's where I grew up. 
so I, I sort of was always interested in space or planets from a young age, grade one, grade two, things like that. But we never had a telescope or anything like that at home. And in Ottawa, there was, there was no planetarium to go and see. I had no way to kind of look at this a little bit deeper. That sort of was one of my interests on, on the sidelines as a child. And then I suppose I was in uh, middle school, so, so there it would have been grade seven or eight, something like this. And my parents had gotten me this uh, National Geographic hardcover textbook called Our Universe. It yeah. wasn't really a textbook, but it was a, one of these hardcover books that National Geographic would have sometimes about space. And I remember reading about that essentially the concept that light had a speed and that if we're looking at a star very far away, say in the constellation Orion, on the star Betelgeuse, for example, the light that we see now from the star actually left that star several hundred years ago. And that was just completely mind-blowing to me. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So you're a Canuck, and now in Australia. Could you tell us a little about your early school days and your early ambitions, and did those ambitions change? Yeah, actually, they did. So while I was always sort of interested in astronomy and learning about the planets and things like that, I always thought I would actually pursue a career in art. <laughs> yep. um, I was quite interested in drawing, visual arts, and also music as well. I played a couple of instruments growing up. Yeah, so my sort of serious interest in science didn't happen until much later, until I was in high school, actually. Yeah. Very good. So after your successful school career, you completed your undergraduate degree in Toronto, and then your master's in Nova Scotia, and then your PhD in New Mexico, USA, which you finished off at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That's a really interesting study trajectory. Can you tell us about the highlights of this journey? Yeah, sure. Basically, I was an undergraduate in the physics program at York University, uh, like you said, in Toronto. So a great opportunity that I had there as an undergrad was uh, working at the observatory because we had an observatory there. I basically worked, you know, two or three times a month giving tours to the public, various age groups, as well as taking real science data. So that gave me some real hands-on experience with using telescopes and, and doing some observing. Toward the end of my, well, maybe partway through my undergraduate degree, I, I thought, hmm, well, I, I actually do want to be an astronomer. And, and I, I realized, because I really had no clue when I started my undergraduate, that I needed to go to graduate school if I wanted to actually continue doing astronomy long term, at least, well, to be an academic. And so I applied for a few master's programs in Canada, because in Canada, it's back then, <laughs> It was standard to do uh, a master's degree before starting a PhD. Yep. So I, I applied to a few programs and ended up going to St. Mary's University in Halifax, which was great. I spent two years there, and I got to uh, go on my first observing run, actually, with my, with my supervisor. I went to the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope on Mauna Kea, yep. and that was a wonderful experience, pretty exciting. My master's project was primarily observational, so looking at star-forming regions in one of the Orion molecular clouds. I decided for my PhD I'd like to do something a little bit more theoretical, involving more modeling. And I also wanted to go, you know, maybe to the U.S., out of Canada, for a change. <laughs> yep. 
and warmer weather as well. So yeah, so I actually had a friend at New Mexico State University. I applied to several places actually in the U.S. and also in Canada. Uh, my GRE scores weren't particularly great, so I wasn't overly optimistic about some of these applications. I was pretty excited about New Mexico State University because at the time I wanted to work on cosmological simulations and there was somebody there that was um, working on this. And interestingly, I also applied to ANU here in Canberra to do a PhD with Brian Schmidt. I had talked to him over email and said, oh, I'm really interested in your, in your research. If I were to apply and get in, would you be interested in, in having me as a student? And he was very positive and wrote back, yeah, just you know, apply and, and then we'll, we'll go from there. However, in the end, I got into New Mexico State, and it was going to be another several months until ANU would even assess the applications. Yep. And I didn't want to risk turning down the one university and then also not getting into ANU, so in the end, I, I let that go, and I went to New Mexico State. Yeah, and that was also a really good time. I enjoy, I learned a lot there. Um, I actually, I didn't work on cosmological simulations. I, I became very interested in uh, binary star evolution and also gravitational wave sources in the galaxy. So at New Mexico State, I had a lot of experience with uh, international meetings, presenting my work in various places around the world. I also learned to downhill ski and to eat hot chilies. So those are a couple of my other achievements. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then my supervisor, he had spent uh, the last couple of years of his PhD at Harvard, pre-doctoral fellowship. And he encouraged me to apply to this because it's, it's a really great program where you get to, you know, you, you still get your PhD from your home institution, but you get to spend some time working at Harvard among many different astronomers and astrophysicists working on, on many different things. It's quite a unique experience when you come from a, a, a smaller type of department where you don't have very many faculty working on a variety of things. So yeah, I applied for that and I was successful. So that's why I spent the last year of my PhD actually finishing up my thesis working at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, which was a great opportunity. Fantastic. What a great journey. So then a few years as a postdoc at the Max Planck Institute for Astrophysics in Gaching, just north of Munich in Bavaria. How did that come about and what research did you focus on there and how was the culture shock experience for you? <laughs> well, for the culture shock, actually, that was not really a problem. You know, the U.S. was also a little bit of a culture shock. So, so Germany was not, <laughs> you know, also a little different. The main culture shock there, well, if I have to say there was any, was the language. Basically not speaking the native language can make certain everyday tasks that we take for granted very challenging. For example, reading your lease agreement, things like this. So, so, but the staff at MPA were great. There were staff there that helped me with some of these things to get started. I did take some German lessons while I was there. MPA and all is, is a great place to be many, many bright people. I was quite excited to be living in Munich. In terms of my research at the MPA, I basically expanded on my type 1a supernova research that I had started toward the end of my PhD studies. So basically looking at how different formation channels of interacting binary stars might explain some of the thermonuclear or type 1a supernovae that we see. So for example, certain types of white dwarf mergers, as well as other types of systems that are not mergers. So that's mostly what I focused on while I was at MPA. Working in, uh, yeah, Wolfgang Hillebrand's group there. Fantastic. And we will put on our propeller hats a bit later. 
And then five years ago, you moved to Australia. And after your previous journeys, I might be tempted to say, oh, that's no big deal. But I don't want to make any assumptions. How did this transition to Australia come about? And do you like your new friends up in the southern skies? Oh, definitely. Yes. This was a move to another hemisphere. So I would say it's still still a step step up from where I had moved before. Essentially, my husband and I were both astrophysicists. Yep. Uh, we met in Germany, and we were coming toward the end of our contracts, and we were looking for jobs. And at this point, uh, we had already one child, and we had another one on the way. And so we were applying for various positions across the planet, basically, to try to f- both find a job at the same place, at least in the same city. This two-party problem is, is a well-known, uh, it's well-known that it's quite a difficult one to solve. A colleague of mine at MPA told us about this job, advertised at ANU. They were looking for a SkyMap fellow. So it was a job that Brian Schmidt was advertising for. Yep. So my husband, Ivo, Zeichenstahl, and I, we contacted Brian Schmidt and said, oh, okay, so we saw this job ad. Is there any way, you know, if we were to apply and we're successful, can we potentially work something out where you have, like, we have, like, a dual position and Brian was very positive about this, and he said, yeah, look, I mean, he was very honest. He said, look, you need to apply and, and see how you rank. In the end, if, if we can offer you both the job, we will work something out. And I made it clear that I was going to be having a, a baby soon, and so I actually was not interested in working full-time, at least not right away. Yep. Yeah, so it ended up that my husband and I were both uh, ranked at the top of the shortlist. And so Brian said, okay, great, it's up to you guys, you know, Someone needs to be full-time for visa reasons, and you work out, you know, between you what you think works best for you and your family. And so, essentially, what we did, we, we took the job, we said, great, and we moved over there. My husband being full-time, working a, as a SkyMapper fellow for Brian Schmidt, and I was starting out on one day a week. Because my, yeah, our second child was, he wasn't quite three months old when we moved over here. And then I gradually went up to two and then three days a week. And Brian was extremely flexible through the whole thing. Yeah, and we were able to push the start date back uh, because of the baby's birth. So that was also (laughs) quite nice. Yeah, so I find that generally Australia has a very good work-life balance outlook, which has been very good for me and my family. Fantastic. It's great to hear that there are workplaces where their workplace flexibility policies work in favour of the employee rather than solely in place of the employer. That's really good. Yep. Yep. Okay, so in Australia, first you're a Castro postdoc and now an ARC Future Fellow, as well as your position as a senior lecturer in the School of Science at UNSW Canberra. Can you develop a good balance between your research and your role as a lecturer? And... Do you recruit PhDs to work in your research team? How does that all work, Ashley? Yeah, good question. So since I started my future fellowship uh, here at UNSW Canberra, I mean, so these future fellowships, um, they're canonically 100% research roles. However, in practice, what often what future fellows will do is, is also teach a little bit to not overload themselves too much because this is always helpful uh, in the case of a promotion and developing your your profile as an academic. So currently, I do lecture half of one course per year. 
um, while I'm a future fellow. At some point that will go up. I'll probably be lecturing one class, maybe it's sometimes two courses per year. But uh, it is, <laughs> yeah, it is a bit difficult to to balance this, particularly the first time. <laughs> so last year was my first time uh, co-teaching a course. And yeah, that was pretty full on. But fortunately, I'm teaching the same half course this year, starting in July. And since I've done it once and I've already made up the slides, you know, I, I, I sort of know what to improve and, and I do have to make some changes. But overall, I'm confident that this time it will be a little less stressful and I'll have a little bit hopefully a little bit of time to do some research because during those three months last year when I was preparing these for the first time I I hardly had any time to actually research yep. and on top of this I work part-time so I, I only work four days a week uh, rather than five so time is always a little bit short for PhD students uh, yes great question I am recruiting PhD students and on my website through WordPress under student projects there are a couple of links there where students who are interested can learn a little bit more about this as well as email me. Um, basically how it works is students need to apply online through the University of New South Wales website. Though it's a bit tricky because the main campus for UNSW is in Sydney and I'm here in Canberra. So it's a little bit fiddly. You need to kind of know where to go. But essentially it's an online application and the students build their portfolio. And if they receive a scholarship, they can come here to work with an academic. So one way UNSW Canberra is a bit unique from ANU and uh, UNSW Kensington and other institutions is students cannot be self-funded. So they need to receive a scholarship yep. to come here, um, which means they need to have pretty good grades. So it is quite competitive, but yes, I'm, I'm always looking for, for graduate students and I have various uh, research projects that, that would be well suited for higher degree research students. Fantastic. We'll put those links in the show notes, Ashley. Oh, great. Thanks. Now, let's put our propeller heads on. We love our audiences to come to grips with some heavy-duty astrophysics. In your PhD, you first set yourself up with expertise in binary systems and white dwarfs, and I just had a look at your recent 2019 paper on the formation of neutron stars via accretion-induced collapse in binaries. And here you make theoretical predictions about how some white dwarfs can collapse and form neutron stars. Can you give us an outline of what can happen in some of these binary systems that you're researching and what conditions determine whether you end up with a specific type of white dwarf that may end up as a type 1a supernova, a neutron star or something else. Go for it, Ashley. <laughs> okay, well, basically it's the type or the types of evolutionary interactions. So for example, exchanging mass between the stars, right? These interacting binaries, interacting essentially means two stars where one star will be dumping mass on the other one or vice versa. Yep. And there are different ways the stars can react when this happens. For example, you can have mass being dumped toward one star very, very quickly that it can't properly adjust to this new mass. So what happens is both stars end up engulfed in the envelope, essentially, of this mass-losing star. That's what we call a common envelope. Yep. And when this happens, we don't understand the physics of this very, very well at this point. But we do know the end result is that both of the stars, so the core of that star that lost its envelope and the other companion, end up closer together. So they end up on a smaller orbit. Yep. 
And when this happens, you can get further interactions happening from there. You can get another common envelope later. You can get what we call stable mass transfer, where one star fills its Roche lobe and sort of more gently transfers matter toward its companion, um, where there, there's no large amount of mass lost from the system. So essentially, whether a star ends up making a type 1a supernova, for example, so an exploding white dwarf, or an accretion-induced collapse, white dwarf to a neutron star, depends on you know these sequences of events when they happen, but most importantly, it depends on the composition and the mass of the white dwarf. So to give you an example of a typical formation channel that I found for these accretion-induced collapse systems, you basically have, have two stars that start out. At one point, one of them becomes very evolved. You know, it evolves into what we call an asymptotic giant branch star, so it becomes very, very, very large and, and, and quite red in color. It loses its mass. Its mass goes to the, the companion star, which is still kind of like a sun-like star, right? Um, it hasn't evolved much yet. That asymptotic giant star loses its envelope in a common envelope and leaves behind um, a white dwarf, okay? And this, this white dwarf is actually composed of oxygen and neon because um, it was quite heavy. So what determines whether a, a white dwarf ends up being more composed of oxygen and neon or carbon and oxygen depends on that star's core had. And the heaviest one, the heaviest white dwarfs will have uh, more oxygen and neon, and the, the sort of middle mass ones will have a lot of carbon, so carbon and oxygen. Then you have this oxygen-neon white dwarf in, this, in orbit with this normal star. Eventually that normal star will run out of hydrogen fuel and turn on the red giant branch, um, becomes a red giant, and you get another common envelope happening. And as the system gets even closer together, this time the red giant doesn't quite leave behind a white dwarf. It leaves behind this core, this hot core of helium that still hasn't finished burning. So you have this helium-burning core, so what we call a, a hydrogen-stripped helium-burning star, <laughs> which will eventually, if left to its own devices, it will, it will eventually run out of helium and turn into a white dwarf. But before that happens, in this particular case, that helium white dwarf now it's so close to that oxygen white dwarf, that helium white dwarf will fill its, its Roche lobe and start to transfer mass over to the white dwarf, but this time fairly, fairly slowly. So there's no engulfment here, just the white dwarf's steadily accreting mass of this helium burning into carbon, increasing that mass of the white dwarf, of the oxygen white dwarf. Yep. At some point, though, the central density of that white dwarf reaches a critical number, okay? This is what leads to the accretion-induced collapse. So in the case of an accretion-induced collapse system, you have these happening from oxygen-neon white dwarfs, whereas if, if you had, say, a carbon-rich white dwarf, which most white dwarfs in the, in the universe are made of carbon and oxygen, if the carbon-oxygen white dwarf reaches a critical density, or some people say the Chandrasekhar mass, but yep. it, it's actually really the central density of the white dwarf that matters, you can get a type 1a supernova explosion because of carbon burning. Carbon burning basically becomes, it happens very rapidly. Whereas when, when you have an oxygen-neon white dwarf, you don't have this out-of-control burning happen because you don't have a lot of carbon there. You have oxygen, which has different uh, properties in the carbon, so instead what will happen in this um, accretion-induced collapse scenario, when this oxygen-neon white dwarf reaches this critical central density, what will happen is you get these electron captures, and so you essentially lose pressure. You lose, you know, degeneracy pressure. So I didn't mention this 
before, maybe this is getting <laughs> a bit too propeller cappy, but um, essentially a white dwarf is held up by electron degeneracy pressure. And when you remove electrons, it loses pressure and starts to collapse in on itself. And so when this, when this critical density happens, it's, 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 I'm sort of glossing over a lot of the details here, <laughs> but essentially, <laughs> essentially what happens is, is start collapsing that white dwarf into a neutron star. And that happens uh, more readily than you would get an explosion. Whereas if you had a white dwarf that was made of carbon and oxygen, you'd more likely have a thermonuclear explosion from the carbon burning. Wow. But in, yeah, in the case when you have oxygen neon, you get different reactions happening at different rates. And so you end up making a neutron star from this. And we call it AIC accretion-induced collapse because it is a collapse to a neutron star, but it's, it's induced from this accretion rather than... You know, the typical way a neutron star is formed, which is in a, a core collapse supernova. Fantastic. That's great. Now, also in that paper, you mentioned LISA, the LISA Interferometer Space Antenna, and we've just seen there's lots of excitement happening with Virgo and with LIGO and yep. gravitational waves. Tell us a bit about LISA and your plans for working in the future there. Right, so LISA is a proposed space mission. It's led by the European Space Agency, also with input from NASA. Essentially, it will be the first space-based gravitational wave observatory. And people might say, well, we got these gravitational wave observatories on the Earth. Why do we need any in space? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty expensive. <laughs> so the reason why we're interested in having a gravitational wave observatory in space is because you can have a much larger scale instrument. So gravitational wave observatories like LIGO and the proposed LISA use uh, laser interferometry to measure gravitational waves. Now LIGO and Virgo, you know, they're, they're on the planet, and I believe LIGO's interferometer arms are about four kilometers long. Yep. LISA, it will basically be three spacecraft in a equatorial triangular configuration in orbit around the sun trailing the Earth, okay? Yep. Now, the length of the arms, the lasers between spacecraft, is going to be much, much larger. They'll be, they're proposed now about uh, 2.5 million kilometer long arms. Ooh. So it's with these very long arms that you're able to probe a very different region um, gravitational wave frequencies, which means LISA will be sensitive to a range of astrophysical objects that LIGO and Virgo cannot see. So, for example, LISA will be able to detect double white dwarf binaries within our own Milky Way galaxy, as well as white dwarf neutron star mergers, which is something I'm very interested in. Also, LISA will be sensitive to supermassive black hole mergers, so distant merging galaxies. So it's a whole other different range of scientific questions we can answer, hopefully, with LISA, that we, we, we simply can't um, answer all of these things with LIGO and Virgo alone. Fantastic, exciting times. Do you think LISA will have directionality capability? Oh, it is an all-sky observatory. So, yeah, it, I don't know the latest now what, what the estimates are, and I think, you know, this depends a little bit on how, how the run goes. Assuming, yeah. you know, you have a, a solid year run, eventually the directionality should be quite okay. But with anything gravitational waves, you're not just looking at it directly at a photon and know exactly where it came from. 
um, you are looking at the whole sky, and so it's a lot more complicated to sort of reconstruct and see. Um, similar with radio observations, it's, it's, uh, you need to really reconstruct and, and to figure out where these signals may have come from. So I believe it, it will be some information there about where these objects, say if you see a gravitational wave signal, roughly where it comes from. Possibly by then, so this, the proposed launch date of LISA is 2034. Yep. Um, though when I was starting my PhD, it was 2015. Um, yep. But hopefully now we're on a good track. Now we've had the LISA Pathfinder mission, which was quite successful. Perhaps in the future we'll have other complementary instruments that will be able to help to locate the direction of the sources. Yeah, hopefully James Webb will be up by then. Yeah, uh, exactly. I definitely hope so. Yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks. Lisa sounds <laughs> awesome. Now, the mic is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges we face in science or science denialism or science career paths or equity, diversity, flexibility, or our quest for new knowledge or even science outreach. The mic's all yours, Ashley. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, thinking about career paths, definitely one thing that helped me, I mentioned this a little bit before, is having very flexible supervisors, people that I work with. For example, I think if it weren't for Brian Schmidt saying, oh, you know, we're flexible, you know, you can work one day a week and come back up to full time or not at your own pace, that was extremely helpful to me. And I probably would not still be in astronomy had I not been given that opportunity to um, take the time off I, I needed with my family. Because, you know, when, when you're, I have three kids now, uh, when your kids are really little, you want to try to spend time with them because you really don't get that time back. Whereas the science, you know, you, you, you definitely may miss out on, on certain things, on networking and things like that. But um, basically, you never get that time back with your, with your young children. Yeah, so essentially being given the opportunity to work, even though my needs didn't fit into the typical mold, right, of a, of a researcher or of an academic, where you normally would be available full time, five days a week. So that's one of the things I really like about working in Australia is the work culture here is, is advanced in some ways, at least in academia, from what I've seen. And I've only been here five years, um, but in my, in my limited experience, it's been, it's been very good. Universities, some of them at least, try to only have meetings between the sort of core work hours between you know, 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. because parents sometimes have to leave early to go pick up their children from school. Whereas certain places in the world, I know that they're just so behind in this respect. And if you don't fit into that typical mold of, you know, working 60 hours a week, and <laughs> it's questionable whether that's even more productive. Yeah, so I guess that would be my, my main takeaway. Thank you, Ashley. That sounds very encouraging. So is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? Like, what are you keeping your eye on? <laughs> Well, I'm keeping an eye on the LIGO and Virgo alerts. <laughs> so the so LIGO uh, and Virgo, they're, 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 they started their third uh, operations run from beginning of April. And this run should run for several months, possibly up to a year, I think, um, where the instruments are, you know, they're, they're turned on and they're basically searching for gravitational wave uh, signals from things like double neutron star mergers, more commonly double black hole mergers, so, so far there, there have been a number of these uh, double black holes detected. 
We're hoping to get a few more double neutron star mergers because uh, and I, th I believe it's expected that between 1 and 50 of these things may be detected uh, over the next year. The thing is, these are double neutron star mergers are, in a way, well, I don't want to say more exciting, but they offer us more information than double black hole mergers because with a double neutron star merger, or say a neutron star black hole merger, you will probably see an electromagnetic counterpart. I shouldn't say you'll probably see it. I say there's a chance to see it. Yep. Because uh, it depends, right, like you were mentioning earlier, it depends. Uh, sometimes you don't have a very good localization on the sky where this merger event came from, and so it's hard to point your telescopes in the right direction. Also, it may depend on the orientation of the binary when it merged. It may or may not uh, beam a signal very strongly in our direction. But yeah, so so I'm 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 always sort of trying to stay on top of what's happening there with these gravitational wave events, particularly the ones that we may expect to see an electromagnetic counterpart. Fantastic. Very exciting times. I'm keeping my eye on one of your instruments from your home country. It's been very exciting to see Chime come online and yeah. find FRBs. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. FRBs, a field that's getting a lot of excitement these days. And so, yeah, exciting to see where that will go as well. Indeed. Well, Thank you so much, Dr. Ashley Ryder. On behalf of our listeners, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Thanks especially for your time. And we'll encourage all of our listeners to follow Ashley on Twitter. She does fabulous posts as Grow Chili Peps. That's spelt G-R-O-W-Z-C-H-I-L-E-P-E-P-S. Yep. Grows, grows chili peps, but you need to get the spelling right. <laughs> yeah. Now, for grad students listening who are interested in supernova and associated research into exotic binary star systems, birth rates, mass transfer, transients, and gravitational wave signatures, Ashley is strongly encouraging prospective PhD students with high academic standing to apply to study and research under her supervision at UNSW Canberra. And you can find all the details at tinyurlcom forward slash Ashley Astro. That's tinyurlcom forward slash Ashley Astro. And Ashley Astro this is all lowercase, all one word. All right. Thank you very much, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ashley. Okay. Bye. Bye. Hello, Steve. G'day, Brendan. Following a fabulous interview on the Villa Pulsar glitch with Dr. Jim Palfreyman a couple of weeks ago, he's put me in touch with Steve Oney, who is an amateur radio astronomer who was the only observer in the world who detected the 2019 Villa glitch in radio frequencies as it actually happened. Fantastic. Thanks for speaking with us, Steve. It's a pleasure, Brendan. Okay, so before we talk about your homemade radio observatory, your Vela research and the rapidly growing role of amateurs in radio astronomy, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Steve? Yeah, sure. Actually, it was a number of places. 
My dad's job required him to move around approximately once every three years for promotion purposes. So I grew up in about seven places, all of them in New South Wales. So I spent many happy hours wandering around the countryside on my push bike. Ah, and what about dark skies where you were, Steve? Well, that's right. As you can imagine, out in the countryside, there was very little pollution and you could look up at the sky at night time and see a very clear view of the stars. Excellent. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions. And did those ambitions change? Yes, my education was all in the public system and I attended seven different schools. I'd have to say I didn't do all that well at school. and My reports were peppered with that classic can do better and basically only interested in science and physics all the way through. I found that I was only really interested in things that I could put to a practical use. So anything which was just you had to learn just for the sake of learning, I had great difficulty with. But anything where I could see, ah, I could use that for this or that, then it was no problem. In fact, I I remember being cane for daydreaming on more than one occasion. (laughs) I guess you could say I was a typical disinterested student. Probably only the science teachers appreciated my presence in their classes because I participated. That sounds great, Steve. Now, what did you do after school? I finished HSC. In 1968, I was employed by AWA. That's probably not a name that's familiar to most people these days, but it was a very big commercial electronics firm. And I joined as a trainee electrical engineer, doing a diploma in electronic engineering and then converting that to a degree in electrical engineering. Once again, I didn't really excel academically. I was too busy at home building things. But the final year project was something that you had to design and build. And despite academically sort of being down in the bottom, I tied first place for that that practical project. Being trained by AWA was gold. If you went to a job interview, that was a big tick because they knew that if you were trained by AWA, they put you right through the system. So they'd put you in the drawing office. They put you in the test room, I worked on lathes, I worked in the plating shop and so they knew that I had a wide range of experience. I spent two years on the production line soldering. After about 10 years at AWA, I took a punt and moved to a small company which made ultrasound scanners and that was a very interesting company to work for. This involved with Doppler blood flow instruments and then later hypothermia, which is treatment of tumours by localised heating by using a high-power ultrasound. I found that was very, very interesting, those projects. Yep. And later on, I went into technical teaching, the diploma in teaching, and I did a few stints in, in TAFE, teaching electronics. Then I came back and I was head of a department consisting of about 20 design engineers, electronic, electrical, mechanical engineers. But after two years, the call of the workbench and the soldering iron grew too great. 
So I went back and got a job which was back in design. All in all, an interesting range of projects that I've been involved with. And it sounds like your early teachers wouldn't have been surprised to hear that you ended up building your own radio telescope in the backyard now. Did I see somewhere else you were involved in ham radio? Yes, yes. I started out in radio, or being interested in radio, when I was about 10 years old. I had a crystal set and uh, 100 metres of wire and uh, strung up through the gum trees and I'd lie in bed at night and listen to the local AM station. So that was my first taste of the magic of radio. You know, radio is still magic, magic to me. I got my ham radio licence in 1967 and I still have several call signs. And my gear was built from surplus equipment, so I would buy... Navy or ex-Army receivers and transceivers and modify them so they would work in the amateur band. Later on, I experimented with low-frequency transmission and I had several scientific signed licences. And during my experiments, I invented a transmission code called IFK, which is incremental frequency keying, and that mode's been incorporated by others into amateur radio software packages. So that was a lot of fun. Fantastic. Now, we're going to talk about your design and build of your radio observatory in your backyard. But before we do, could you just tell us about how your interest in ham radio or how you ended up developing your initial interest in ham radio into radio astronomy. We won't call it an obsession yet, but how did that transition happen? <laughs> uh, it's okay. That's, it is an obsession, but in my defence, you know, what could be more intriguing than receiving signals from an object 900 light years away? I also had an interest in astronomy, as you, you mentioned about the clear skies in the country. I spent a lot of time looking at the, the night skies in a way that would not be available these days because we would be driving home from some outing in the country, maybe down on the beach, and I would get up on the parcel shelf behind the back seat and lie across there. This is obviously before the days of seat belts and <laughs> such. I'd lie on the parcel shelf and just stare up at the sky and, and uh, look at the stars, you know, as you're passing through the trees. And when you spend that, you might spend half an hour just also looking up at that. And it just gave me an overwhelming sense of wonder at the cosmos. So even, I suppose, when I was eight years of age, I had that seed of interest in, in astronomy. But uh, later on, when I thought I might indulge that, I found I was a magnet for mosquitoes. So sitting outside at an optical telescope was not pleasant. So that sort of motivated me to turn to radio astronomy um, because you have a combination of radio and astronomy and also programming. But you could indulge in any hour of the day. It's 24-7. doesn't need to be nighttime. And most importantly, it's mosquito-free because you're inside. That's great motivation, <laughs> Steve. 
And the first foray into radio astronomy was in was about 1991, where I built a, a simple interferometer, which was pointed at the sun. I used two UHF TV antennas operating at 600 megahertz into a narrowband receiver. Around that time, I didn't do much because I had children growing up, but when they'd grown up later on, I had the opportunity to return to that interest. Fantastic. I love the way you describe it as simple interferometry, but I think there's a bit of modesty there. So let's move on now to your current research. You've created the Hawkesbury Radio Astronomy Observatory in your backyard where you've built a Yagi complex antenna array. I've seen the picture. And you've coupled it with the receiver and you're generating data that has enabled you to be the only person on the planet to observe Vila's 2019 glitch, which came a bit early and surprised people in radio waves as it happened. Let's talk about your antenna and, you know, the when, the why and the how you decided to build a Yagi and how you constructed it. Can you talk us through your antenna build and describe it for us and tell us what problems you encountered and how you've refined it? Okay. Uh, it was a result of a lot of research to arrive at the current system that I had. I had to come up to speed on the whole skill set, certainly a steep learning curve. Um, if you're an amateur and you're doing it all alone, you've got to build everything. If you're a professional, you know, the telescope's built for you, a lot of software's written. If you're a sole amateur, then you have to do everything yourself. So that took a heck of a long time. But I simplified it by assembling a system that was specifically for detecting the Vela pulsar. It's a handy pulsar for me. It goes directly overhead. It's the strongest pulsar, and so it was an ideal candidate. We live on a three-quarter acre block. Sounds like plenty of room for putting up radio astronomy antennas, but the block is almost entirely covered in gum trees. <laughs> and, and so there are only a couple of clear windows to the sky. And uh, the best location with the biggest window just happens to be right in the line of sight of our best view. So the second best location had to be chosen. <laughs> and even in that position, the angle of clear view to the sky is less than about 30 degrees. Um, which actually simplified things because there was no point constructing some complicated tracking system because you could only go, you know, plus or minus 15 degrees and you'd run into trees, which would ruin the observation. Yep. We only had a few metres space between the border and the side of the house. So the usual dish antenna is not practical because it builds up its collecting area by getting bigger. And so that's why I chose a Yagi antenna design because those types of antennas build up their collecting area or aperture by increasing in length rather than width. So as Vila passes almost directly overhead, you can imagine I could put these very long antennas, but they could be pointing straight up. So they fitted in those few metres of space 
beside the house. So that was one reason I went to the Argies. Cool. The observation frequency, going high in frequency, of course, is better for RFI, radio frequency interference. Um, it's less at higher frequencies. But the problem is the pulses are weaker at higher frequencies. Vela is actually five times stronger at 400 megahertz than it is at 1400 megahertz. So it makes a mighty big antenna to make up for that factor of five. So I chose 430 megahertz, where Vela is strong, and I also chose 430 specifically in the 400 megahertz band because you could get amateur antennas commercially for that frequency. So the array ended up being four circularly polarised Yagis in a fixed pointing, virtually straight up, and those Yagis are about six metres long. So I have this wonderful, to me, beautiful garden art <laughs> sticking up in the backyard. They have to be circularly polarised because Vila is very close to being 100% linearly polarised. And as the beam sweeps across you, your line of sight, it swings in the angle of the polarisation. So if you put a linear antenna up, it might be spot on for part of the swing, but be cross-polarised for the rest. So if you've got a circularly polarised antenna, it, it just evenly responds all the way through the pulse. Wow, that's awesome, Stove. You've not only found the sweet spot, you've found the sweet antenna to fit in the sweet spot. That's right, yes. Okay, now what about the receiver that you've connected to your Yagi array using SDR? And can you tell us about the format of the data that you collect and how it's visualised and analysed and how you know you've captured Vila each day. And that first capture, Steve, must have been very exciting because, as your friend Jim Poffreyman told us two episodes ago, pulsars are the holy grail for amateur radio astronomers. And you did it. Tell us about that fantastic moment and the lead-up to it with your data. Well, first the receiver. It turns out that the receiver I use is one of the most surprising aspects to professionals. And I tell them you know, what my system is because it's the least expensive part of the system. It's one of those digital TV USB dongles, you know, the ones you can buy for 20 bucks on eBay, yep. which is kind of a bit different from the megabuck front ends that the professionals use. So they're a bit surprised at that. And it's only got a narrow operating bandwidth or receiving bandwidth of 2.4 megahertz. So that, once again, is down the bottom end of performance. And there are others which can do better than that, but this is about the cheapest SDR that you can do. And this is made possible by some very clever chaps who've written special software drivers which repurposes these digital TV dongles to be able to capture raw data. And so that turns these cheap dongles into SDRs, software-defined receivers. Now, of course, the receiver has to be preceded by filters and low-noise amplifiers to you know, prevent overload and bring up the signal level. 
basically that's the core of the receiving side of it. And that's built into basic automatic daily observation. I have a robotics scheduler that carries out their daily observation, just switches on and records data for an hour a day at the appropriate time and veal is passing overhead. And that one hour's worth of data is in complex binary format called IQ or quadrature. And that's then converted to a standard format that is familiar to professional astronomers, which is called a filter bank format. And that basically breaks the signal down into frequency channels. So it splits up the 2.4 megahertz into smaller channels. I split it into 32 channels. And that's needed for a process called de-dispersion. Dispersion is caused by the signal travelling through the interstellar medium, the ISM. And what it does to the signal is that even though the signal started out at the pulsar at the same time, as it travels through, the lower frequency part of that broadband signal gets delayed. So by the time it arrives here at my antenna at 430 megahertz, the top end of the highest frequency part of the signal arrives about 16 milliseconds before the low end. So if you want to get the best sensitivity, you've got to make sure that those two signals arrive at the same time so you can stack them on top of each other and add them to get the best signal. And that's what de-dispersion is. You take those frequency channels and you artificially remove the delay between those frequency channels so they all line up in time. And then so you have one time series data record and then you fold that at the period of the pulsar to stack up the pulses. Because of the very small antenna and the narrow bandwidth I've got, my system is not sensitive enough to see single pulses. I have to take an hour's worth of pulses and stack them on top of each other so the pulses stack up and the noise decreases and that allows me to bring the pulse out of the noise. To do that, I could just fold once at one predicted period but the point of my system is I'm trying to measure period and I'm trying to detect a change in period. So it's no good just folding at the predicted period because one day a glitch comes along and you'll fold at the wrong period. What I do is I test fold the data over a period range of plus or minus five parts per million around the predicted period and I find the period which gives the best signal and that becomes my daily period measurement. As I'm comparing and, and looking at my day-to-day -day measurements, if I see a, a big jump in my measurement, that's an indication that Vila has glitched. And I think Jim's covered it pretty extensively in previous podcasts, but a glitch is a sudden drop in the rotation period, which for Vila happens every three years or so. So at the end of the processing chain, I have a clear pulse profile, which is the proof of the pudding. And yes, after many failed attempts, seeing my first real detection had me dancing around the house, I was very, very happy. 
And that first detection happened in May 2017. And so now I've done nearly two and a half years of these daily observations. Amazing. That's fantastic. Now, let's move on now then to the 2nd of February earlier this year in 2019. Am I correct that you at the Hawkesbury RAO captured the glitch as it happened? Yes, well, technically, yes. But as I mentioned, I cannot see the individual pulses. You know, I'd need a 20-metre dish or so for that. So maybe a, a short summary of what happened at the time might be helpful. Yes, please. So on the day, Vila entered the antenna beam about 12.15am Saturday morning local time and exited at 1.15am, so about an hour later. So the glitch occurred about 1.10am. So that was the last five minutes of that observation. So as my period measurement averages over the hour, I didn't see it initially in my results because the last five minutes observation would be swamped by the first 55 minutes observation. But the next day, when it had glitched, it was at the new period for the whole observation, it showed a clear drop in the measured period. So a glitch had occurred. Now, Parks, John Sarkisian at Parks, initially constrained the, the latest time because of when he did his observation, but he had a two weeks break before that observation. So the earliest time Parks could give was approximately 14 days prior. Now, because I do daily observations, it meant I could initially constrain the earliest time of the glitch to within 24 hours. And because of the way that I do my measurements, I don't do time of arrivals or OAs as professionals do. I actually make an on-spot period measurement. I was able to estimate straight away that it was, well, I said 2.3 plus or minus 0.1 parts per million, and it turned out to be 2.49 parts per million actual. So I was in the ballpark with that as well. These constraints and when it actually occurred was later confirmed by the Fermi Lat gamma ray data, which was pointing at Vela at the time of the glitch also. So only my radio data and the Fermi Lat gamma ray data contain the, the Vela glitch. That's so awesome. Okay, well, let's go into a bit of propeller head detail now. And Could you tell us about the software you use and how you use it to look at Vela? You've already talked about the folding. Do you want to mention any other targets that you have and the challenges that you have to face with software and analysis? Sure. Well, software is a major factor. Um, everything is done digitally after the initial analogue to digital conversion in the, the little dongle I was talking about. Because I had a lack of experience with Linux, I didn't initially use professional applications which are available. So I wrote the custom code for my processing in C Sharp in Windows. Um, of course, and that goes against what normally you would do in radio astronomy, of course, you'd use Linux and uh, operating system. 
wouldn't do it in Windows. Well, I did the opposite to what, <laughs> what most people would do. So I had to write all that code myself, except for the dongle driver I was, I was mentioning before. And of course, the fast Fourier transform source code, which is the thing that allows me to break the data into those filter bank format into different channels. That was written by others. And uh, I think, yeah, there was one AstroPy script that was written by another person as well. But all the rest I wrote myself. So I ended up with a Windows GUI, which automates the data capture, the processing, the analysis, and also it, it uploads to a website so people can see. Because that was one of the important things for me to do. It's one thing to take some data and then discover something in it and then say, oh, look, I found this in my data three days ago. Whereas if I put it up on the website, it was there. People, in most cases, people could see it before I would see it because if they were sitting there watching it, it would come up. And if I was away somewhere, they would see it before I would. And on a number of occasions, um, people would email and say, oh, there was something interesting in your uh, results today, Steve. And I said, oh, okay. I'll go and have a look. So it's a sort of a set and forget operation. It's been running for over two years. Initially, it was just my own software, but later on, I did some integration with that professional software by rather clunky means. Um, the main code would run on Windows, uploads results to the cloud, along with a semaphore file. A Linux machine would be monitoring and looking for that semaphore file in the cloud and then it would download some data from the cloud and run a professional program. The one I used was a prep folder. It's out of the Presto suite of applications and then produce a result which were then uploaded to the website. And I had two computers doing it, one Windows communicating through the cloud to a Linux machine and processing data. So that's something that I wanted to fix. So I'm now rewriting all my C-sharp Windows code to run exclusive on a Linux machine. And I've had to learn Linux, Python, and graphics plotting packages and so on. I'm also involved in a major project to add accurate timestamping to the data so I can generate TOAs, which are time of arrivals of each individual pulse. That sounds very cool. Now, on one level, it sounds like you've done a lot of this yourself, but we know that it takes a village to raise a radio astronomer. Tell us about your experiences with mentoring by the professional radio astronomy community. Yeah, sure, Brendan. It's an important topic to talk about. It's something which affects amateurs quite a lot. If you are a optical amateur astronomer, you would have a choice. Well, in Sydney here, I can imagine I could, within reasonable driving distance, maybe three or four astronomy clubs that you go to and get all sorts of information and help and guidance about using an optical telescope. If you rock up to those clubs and say, oh, I'm interested in radio astronomy, then you're out of luck. I think there's probably two that I know of. There's probably three, but I'd say two clubs which 
are heavily into radio astronomy in, uh, in Australia. And as far as I know, and not in Sydney, which is where I live. Yeah. So you're on your lonesome, more or less. Now, I've been fortunate enough to had contact with a number of professional individuals over the years and they've given advice and information. The list is long. I might mention Joe Taylor, Sarah Buchner, Matthew Bales, George Hobbs, John Sarkissian, and, of course, Dr Jim Palfreyman, which obviously is a name familiar to all of us. Now, amateurs struggle to be taken seriously. Now, this is understandable. Pros get a lot of spam and, you know, flat earthers and so on. So you've got to break that, uh, that barrier. I think the professionals probably thought initially that what I was trying to do wasn't really possible, but they still answered questions, which is credit to them. The other responsibility an amateur has is to, you need to show that you've done your homework and you're not wasting their time. If you can show you've done your homework, then they will respond. Now, Jim was especially tolerant and patient, <laughs> as he's already told you. And I owe a great deal to Jim because without Jim, possibly there'd be no mention in that ATEL 12466, which announced the glitch. There would be no meeting with Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell and also possibly the opportunities which followed those particular events. Now, Jim gave me a complete tour of the 26th metre down in Hobart and also the Great Reba Museum. And I had the pleasure of listening to Vila in real-time audio and Jim discussed his past work and future ideas and that was a real privilege. I also had several visits to ATNF, to CSIRO, Marsfield, where I met George Hobbs and John Sarkissian, Dick Manchester, amongst others. Yep. Tim Bateman contacted me because of my glitch result, and he gave myself and my wife Pam an extensive tour of most. That upgrade down at most, down near Canberra, and I was really in my element being shown by Tim over all the gear down there. It was really a terrific day. So all in all, I'm grateful for the guidance and support that professionals have given me. I've found them very friendly, very helpful people. Very good. Okay, now I believe you've formed a small group of amateurs around the world who are interested in pulsar detection. Tell us about this, Steve. Uh, gladly. There's only probably a, a handful of amateur people doing pulsar detections around the world. And amateur pulsar detection is a difficult challenge. So many things that have to go right, and if one of them goes wrong, then you don't succeed. So when you're trying to sort that out, it's good to have others who are at the same level trying to do the same thing. So I thought there was a need to create a dedicated group to pool information and in, improve communication to facilitate that. So it's mainly people that are moving from the curiosity stage to do scientific-grade projects. The only requirement to be in the group is an interest, 
but importantly, a commitment to scientific methods, which is important for pulsars because pulsars are a pulse. So there are many things that happen on Earth which mimic a pulsar. For example, I live across the road from a 600-acre farm which has five kilometres of electric fencing. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, you know, when we had the old analogue phones, you pick up the phone, you could hear tick, tick, tick from the electric fence. On certain days, I could hear up to three of them just ticking away. And, of course, that's exactly what a pulsar looks like. And so you have to be careful that you're not fooled by those sorts of things. And that's just one of the many things that mimic pulsars here on Earth. So commitment to scientific methods is important. You can't just take one reading and look at a result which only has a significance of, say, four sigma or something and say, oh, look, I've detected a pulsar. You've got to be able to repeat it. You've got to be able to show by other means. You've got to be able to show, look, it's got dispersion. So it's obviously come from outer space. It hasn't come from next door's lawnmower. Yep. So that's the commitment to scientific method. So that's, that was a requirement. So there are about 25 members now, and about maybe half a dozen, about 25, are actually doing pulsar detection. And so I built a website about pulsar detection and the problems that you would have, and also a list those amateurs which have successfully detected pulsars and have verified that detection. Okay, what's the name of that website? The name of the website is Neutron Star, which is just one word, dot joataman.net. Joataman is J-O-A-T-A-M-A-N dot net. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. Now, the microphone's all yours, Steve, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in the sciences or science denialism or career paths or our quest for new knowledge or even science itself. The mic's all yours. Oh, dangerous licence. <laughs> I can hear my family saying, oh, no. <laughs> okay. Basically, I consider myself as an amateur science, so I tend to look at the world that way. Sometimes it's not always socially acceptable and it might offend people, but that's what I tend to do. My pet peeve, I guess, is ideology. Now, ideology is okay. There are a lot of good things in ideology because it orders things and tidies things up. But I think it can have serious consequences when it's isolated from the real world. Now, ironically, most ideologues believe they are in the real world, but sometimes they're not. Now, problems arise when people persist in their ideology, which is contrary to evidence. Particularly, I'm talking about cherry-picking data to support a particular view yep. or engaging in conspiracy theories and so on. Yep. I recently heard a particle physicist say that scientists are anti-politicians. What he meant by that was scientists are seeking data to break theories. 
not seeking data to support their ideology. Yeah. I, I think politicians, leaders, but more importantly, those who vote for them in a democracy need to cast aside ideologies and, and really look at the evidence with an open mind. In my opinion, it's never been a more important time to be standing up for science and it certainly has taken a battering from many sides lately. I'm right with you on that one, Steve. Thank you very much. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? Well, I'm fascinated by fast radio bursts, FRBs. Yep. Not sure whether in my location here I could do anything, but nevertheless, I'm looking at that. Uh, it's really interesting, FRBs, because they're early days. Nobody's sure what they are or even don't even have a good idea what they are. So to be watching the evolution of the theories you know, as more data is collected and refinement of those theories is going to be a really interesting uh, period of time. And I'm glad that I'll be able on the sidelines sit and watch that. It's also a good time for the non-professionals because most of the stuff that's coming in is observational. And so the information that's being produced in papers is not yet buried between pages and pages of high-level maths. So it's very accessible at the moment, as it was, you know, in the early days of pulsars when they were just doing basic observation and, and so it was very accessible. You know, I have a bit of a blue sky FRB amateur project, but we'll talk about that another day perhaps. <laughs> Indeed. Well, thank you so much, Steve Oni. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Brendan, and I thank you for the opportunity. No, no. Thank you, Steve. Farewell for now. See ya. So all being well, we'll have another reprise doubleheader for you in a week or two. Radio Wave.